Let's pray together. Spirit of the living God who is here among us in this very room, would you fall afresh upon us? Would you melt us, cutting off, casting aside, and refining away any impurities, any sicknesses, any diseases, anything that hinders us from receiving your love and from receiving you as you've come to us. Lord, we recognize your holiness. Lord, may we be full of fear before you and reverence as we worship you and as we open your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear these words from the book of Lamentations. It's Thanksgiving Sunday, kind of, so we're going to keep it real happy right off the bat. Uh, Spoken about the city of Jerusalem, the holy city of the Lord, the capital of Judah and of Israel, the mountain of the house of the Lord, the God of Jacob, the beautiful city of Jerusalem. From Lamentations chapter 2, 15 through 16, as I hear the pages flapping, follow along if you will. All who pass your way clap their hands at you. They scoff and shake their heads at daughter Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies open their mouths wide against you. They scoff and gnash their teeth and say, we have swallowed her up. This is the day we've waited for and we've lived to see it. This is the word of the Lord. And in case we didn't catch it, let's hear it one more time. All who pass your way, they clap their hands at you. They scoff at you. Ha! And they shake their heads. At daughter Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies open their mouths wide against you and they scoff and gnash their teeth and say, we've swallowed her up. This is the day we have waited for and we have lived to see it. Now, barring all of the uh, um, I'm forgetting the name of the book. What's the name of the book? The monsters gnashing their teeth and waving their claws and where the wild things are, barring all where the wild things are references, cast those aside for now. How did we get here? How did we get to the point where the enemies of Jerusalem are saying so confidently, scoffing their heads? How did it come to this? Did we not just get delivered from Egypt? And did God, as our last 10, 11 weeks showed us, just give us the Ten Commandments so that we could thrive with one another, so that we could live life abundantly together? Or, or is this destruction and chaos what God had all along? How did it come to this, that our enemies would say this and clap and mock us and mock our city Her gates have sunk into the ground. This is verse 9. Their bars he has broken and destroyed. Her king and her princes are exiled among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets no longer find visions from the Lord. And in verse 11, my eyes fail from weeping. 
I am in torment within, and my heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed. How did we get here? Our meager goal for this morning is to answer this question, how did we get to this point? And to bridge this gap between the Ten Commandments that we've just received, the good word of the Lord, the law of God that centers us around the king of the universe, the one from whom all life and blessings flow to death and destruction and chaos once again. And while plenty of writings happen between the writings of Lamentation and the celebration of Advent, for all intents and purposes, this Uh, The mindset of the author of Lamentations is representative of those who are awaiting the coming of the Lord Jesus, the advent of the Messiah. And so, as we bridge the gap between the Ten Commandments and this destruction, hopefully it will lead us into this Advent season. It was a period of great darkness, a time in need of great light. What happened? So, like we've said already, we just finished the Ten Commandments series. We're beginning the season of Advent next Sunday. So, for us today, we're just going to tell the story. This morning, story time with Jed. Some warnings. You'll bear the unfortunate consequences of me having become a teacher of the Bible at Holland Christian. And that means my expectations are as such of you this very morning, that what I say you will remember. And there will be a test afterwards. So you better take out a pen. There's some pens in front of you. Take out some paper. Get ready to keep tight notes. And be forewarned, there will be entirely too much information this Sunday morning. Too many names, too many places, too many references, too many metaphors. And this is the goal. This is the intent. We'll start with the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai as we tell this story from Ten Commandments to destruction and exile. We'll move quickly through the time of Judges. We'll step into the era of the kings. We'll split across the divided kingdom. We'll wave goodbye to the north. And then we'll get hit by the Babylonian hammer right in the Judean jaw. And your pens and pencils will be scratching so frantically to keep up that they'll likely be breaking and running out of ink. And your hands will be so cramped from the years and years of keyboard-driven underuse that you'll be miserable. You'll be so miserable this Sunday morning, in fact, that you'll feel right along with the misery of the Jews in exile, and that's kind of the goal, desperately just wanting to go home, please. And you'll be so happy that this Sunday is morning that once Advent rolls around next week, it'll once again, for many of us, be the happiest time of year. So are we ready? Any questions? No questions? We're keeping up? Of course we're ready. Hear the story from the Ten Commandments to the time of the exile to the waiting in darkness for the coming light of the Messiah. We'll use the stage as a timeline. This will be the south. This will be the north. Can we get our first slide up? We start at Mount Sinai, but even before that, we start in Egypt. And even before that, it's fair to ask, how did we get into Egypt in the first place? Well... There was a guy named Jacob whose name became Israel, and he had a bunch of sons, and one of them was better than the rest of them. At least that's what he thought, and that's what he told them. And so they kicked him out. They were going to murder him, but one of his oldest, the oldest brother said, let's not actually kill this guy. Let's just exile him to Egypt. They sold him into slavery. He goes to Egypt. He grows in great renown with the Pharaoh's courts, and 
ends up being the deliverer of his family, the Israelites now, from famine and sure death. They come to Egypt, and he saves them because of his wisdom and because of his favor with the rulers of Egypt. And so the Israelites become a people group in Egypt who, like him, have favor. Until, it says, there is a Pharaoh who remembered Joseph no more. And when he forgot about him, they realized how strong the Israelites were growing among them, and so they hit them with slavery, forced them to build, forced them to work beyond their capabilities. And the people were shrouded in a great darkness and in a great despair and in a great chaos. And God heard their cries. And so God came to them. He came to them first as a, as a, as a foreshadowing of what was to come in a burning bush to Moses. And then he brought the people through many, many miracles out of slavery in Egypt. And he told them, this is how you'll know that I'm the Lord your God, that I will deliver you. I will meet you at a mountain where I tell you. That mountain was Mount Sinai. And that mountain is where we've spent the last 11 weeks because God called them to that mountain for our purposes today for two reasons. Well, one reason that's kind of an umbrella over them is because he loved them, because he had chosen them, because he had already chosen them in Abraham. But on this mountain in particular, in Exodus chapter 20, actually this is chapter 19, 20 is where the Ten Commandments are, we hear God say these things. We hear him say, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, they came to the desert of Sinai. This is what you are to say, God telling Moses to the people, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And again in Leviticus 19, we hear that they're supposed to be a holy people, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are God's treasured possession. And we see on Mount Sinai that out of darkness, God called the people to himself to marry them. And now we won't go too deep into this analogy, but it's really beautiful. God has set up a mountain, and there's a canopy above the mountain, and there's witnesses, and there's a, a covenant, and there's a priest by the name of Aaron, and the parties say this covenant, these vows to one another, and God promises his devotion to the people, and the people promise their devotion to the Lord. And like so much we talked about, the people of Israel who once were not a people, like we just heard from First Peter, have become a people, and they've become a centered people. And God not only gives them the Ten Commandments to center their lives around, but he gives them the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is the place, as most of you know already, where God in his very presence dwells in the very midst of the people, at the center of their community, and all life circles around him and is gathered around him. And he's like a sun, and his holiness radiates out, and where he is, so his light goes to be a blessing to the world, to marry his people, to be a blessing to all nations. He refines them in the desert. They love the Lord, skipping some details. They're faithful to the Lord, skipping some details. And they arrive in the land after 40 years of wandering under a man named Joshua. Next post. They go to Canaan. And it says, 
in Joshua, or in Judges, sorry. Joshua leads them into the land, and after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. He was buried. And after that whole generation who walked with Joshua had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. And does this sound familiar already? There's already a people who've forgotten what has come before, who've forgotten what the Lord did to deliver them. And it comes to their destruction, and chaos begins to wrap itself around the people again, and darkness begins to wrap itself around the people again. And the people have no center. There's no Joshua. There's no Moses. They go each in their own way. Each does what is right according to his own eyes. But God continues to send judges, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, etc., people who are filled with the Spirit of the Lord, God coming to them by his very Spirit in order to deliver them. But the pattern is unsuccessful. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges, but they prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge. God was with them. And as long as the judge lived, he would keep the enemies at bay And the Lord would relent because of their groanings under oppression. But when the judge died, the people would quickly return to even more corruption, even more than those of their ancestors following other gods. And for all the labors that God went through to gather the people, to give them his word, which is life, to center them around his very presence, even to send judges to prove that God was still with them over and over and over again, they turned back into darkness. They turned back into darkness. They turned back into darkness and were not centered again. Next slide. So the era of the judges comes to a screeching halt when the people get sick of being overpowered by these foreign nations and they say, hey, we want a king like everybody else has. When Samuel... One of the last judges, a a prophet, a priest, grew old. He appointed his sons as Israel's leaders, but they were no good. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Now God chose Israel to be his treasured possession because they were to be different. They were to be light and darkness. And by worshiping other gods, by prostituting themselves out, by wanting a king like the other nations, they're saying, we don't want you like God. We don't want to be centered around you. We want to be like all the other people. We want to be like this nation. We want to be like this nation. We want to be like this nation. And God says, you know what? Fine. Have a king. Have it your way. And he appoints Saul to be king. And Saul is a king like the kings of the other nations. And he falls and he falters. And God says, Now that you've had it your way for a while, I'm going to gather you back in, gather you back in around my chosen king, around the one who I will anoint with my spirit. And by my spirit on him, you will know again that I am with you. And he anoints David. And David serves under King Saul for many, many years, patiently awaiting the appointing of the Lord to the throne. And finally, he takes the throne 
after gaining great renown. And one of the first things that he does is go to this city called Jerusalem. It was run by a group of people called the Jebusites at the time. Make sure you're keeping notes. I expect you to know all these names. The Jebusites had Jerusalem, this mountain to themselves, and David goes in and he conquers it, and he establishes himself on the top of the mountain, and the Philistines come up, and he thwarts the Philistines' attack against him. And there's peace for a moment. And like any good thing, the first thing that he does is he sets his throne up on the top and he rules with an iron scepter. No, he doesn't. He takes the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the presence of God with the people, the symbol of the throne itself of God, and sets it on the top of the mountain of his capital building, saying, Lord, we're not centered around my authority. We're not centered around a ruling style like military force or whatever sort of economic system is best in the world right now. We're not centered around anything but your very presence at the peak of the mountain that we all can look at and gaze upon. And from you, life will flow and we will be at peace. And like your covenant promises, we'll be a blessing to all nations. And we'll be faithful to you and you'll be faithful to us. And David is so passionate about this. He looks and he sees his own house that's pretty nice and he sees all these other people's houses that are pretty nice. And he says, Lord, why are you still living in a tent? And God says, David, what if I ever asked for a house? You're not gonna build me a house. But your son will build you a house and I'm gonna make this promise to you. He says, your descendants will sit on the throne of Jerusalem forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever because, or before me, and your throne will be established forever. And the, the, the king, the anointed one with the spirit of God, representing the rule of God with the people, God says, I will never forsake this covenant with you. I will be your God and you will be my people and I will establish this city, this place, Jerusalem, this mountain, this throne, uh, the lineage of David for all of eternity. And the people not only are centered, but they feel secure. Any questions so far? Let's move along. So David's a pretty good guy, right? We'd say so. He's okay. He's like the first sort of Messiah figure, so that's pretty cool. He's got kids. He's got a lot of them. Uh, and I apologize for some of the coarse language, um, but David's family that, uh, that centeredness doesn't last very long. David has a son named Amnon. Amnon falls in love with his stepsister, and by love, I mean he's cruel and lustful, and he tricks her, and he abuses her, and he rapes her, and he gets away with it. And David, because he doesn't want to hurt his family, doesn't give due justice to his son Amnon. And so his other son, the full sister of Tamar, his name is Absalom, fills with rage. And after boiling with rage for a full year, he plans uh, a public murder of his brother. He kills Amnon at a feast, and then he flees. And David sees his family crumbling right in front of him. And Absalom flees, and not only does he flee, but he gathers an army for himself, and he says, I'm going to take over that city because of what my father did and not giving me justice. And so Absalom goes and attacks the city, and David says, I don't want to kill my family. So he runs away. And he abandons the city. And he tarries for a while, and Absalom does a number of horrific things. And finally, his commander named Joab, 
slays Absalom. David weeps for his son, forgets to give praise and thanks to, to Joab for saving his people and for saving his family. And David's family continues to crumble apart in what felt like a secure, centered thing. Remember, the descendants of David will rule in peace and justice and truth is already crumbling. David himself has proven his own wickedness, his own failings, by committing adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. But from Bathsheba, there's born a son named Solomon. And Solomon is said to be the next king, even though he's not the oldest. Now, there's a guy named Adonijah who thinks that he should be the next king because he's the oldest one left. So he has himself anointed king by Joab. So now, not only is David's family rebelling against itself, his own generals are rebelling against him by anointing a king that's not the true king. And so Solomon hears of this. Solomon uh, says, Adonijah, I won't kill you as long as David's alive. David dies, so he kills Adonijah, and he kills uh, Joab as well, just for the fun of it. We are not a centered people anymore. And it gets worse. Solomon is great in wisdom and in wealth, and he develops a nation into power. But he rules with a whip, and he, he makes people work so hard. And what was supposed to be a people who had Sabbath rest, who knew the rest of the Lord, who knew the strength of the Lord, feel so weak. And just like they were in, in, in Egypt, they're beginning to feel like slaves. And so finally Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam takes the throne. And the people, through a guy named Jeroboam, who was kind of like the... Uh, um, the representative of the people. He was in charge of the labor forces for the time. Jeroboam uh, goes to Rehoboam and says, Rehoboam, the people will serve you forever if only you lighten the load a little bit. And Rehoboam says, my father whipped you with whips made of cords, but I'm going to whip you with scorpion tails. Yeah. He's not a nice guy. And the people rebel. And the rebellion is so strong that the kingdom that was established in unity under David just two generations earlier becomes split into irreparably ten kingdoms to the north. We call them Israel. Two kingdoms to the south, Judah and Benjamin. We call them Judah. And this was supposed to be a marriage. This was supposed to be a family. This was supposed to be a united group of people centered around the love of God, centered around the one table of the altar, of the bread of communion, of the sacrifice of the lamb. And instead, they're split. They're divided. They're divorced. They're not centered. Not, and just to prove it even more, Jerusalem is where the temple is, right? That's where you worship. Well, the people in the north didn't want to go down to Jerusalem. That would be upsetting. So they built two of their own temples. So they're even trying to split up the presence of God as if you could have control over that sort of thing. Chaos, broken families, the divided kingdom, Judah to the south, Israel to the north. And God is so frustrated. What do I have to do? I've come to you. I've been with you. I've given you my word. I've given you my spirit. I've given you my kings. I've given you my, my priests. What do I need to do? So he starts to send his prophets who continue to give the word. In the next slide, please. To the north, we get the prophets in our Bibles, Amos and Hosea in particular, and we hear about 
the wealth that the North gained at times, but their continued failures with regard to justice and with regard to righteousness. And God says to the people in the North through the prophet Amos, you've grown fat, right? You've grown wealthy, but you've neglected the poor. You've neglected the widow and the orphan and the needy. Turn back to justice. Let justice flow like a river and righteousness like streams of living water, but they don't repent. And through Hosea, the Lord says, you're like my bride that I've married, but you've been unfaithful and you've been murderous and you've been adulterous, and so no longer can I call you my loved one because you've prostituted yourself out so thoroughly. But please repent and I'll take you back and I'll buy you back, whatever the cost. But they don't. They don't repent. So just like in Egypt, just like with uh, Joseph's older brothers, just like with the splitting of the north, God uses something else to bring about the destruction of the people who have failed to center themselves around him. It's their doing. It's their choosing. And in this instance, it's a group of people called the Assyrians. So if our northern kingdom is here, our Assyrians are way over here by the drum set. And a guy named Shalmanassar comes, and he invades the northern kingdom. And summarizing the story very quickly, during the reign of Hoshea, the last king of the north, he lays the final hammer blow, and the people are exiled and gone, and the northern kingdom is wiped out completely. By north. Now, talk about not being centered. You don't even exist anymore. That's pretty far from centered. But down in the south, there's people watching, and the people watch, and there's a king named Hosea, and there's a prophet named Isaiah, and Isaiah speaks to, Hose- or to Hezekiah, sorry, uh, and the king Hezekiah listens to the prophet Isaiah, and they repent. They repent, they repent, they repent, and by this time, the king of Assyria is a guy named Sennacherib, and Sennacherib comes to try and invade Judah, and especially invade Jerusalem, but Hezekiah has so centered himself around the law and around his faith in the Lord, even though they're laid siege against for, I believe, three years, the Lord comes and he sends an angel by a spirit to wipe out the Assyrian armies, and Sennacherib flees back home, ends up being killed by his own family, another Assyrian king takes the throne, because if you live by the sword, you die by the sword, right? And Hezekiah repented, and they centered through the words of the prophet Isaiah around the Lord again. And the Lord delivered them, and the Lord saved them, because the Lord was with them by his spirit. Even in battle, he gave them victory. But there's oppression, there's injustice on the one hand, and we wave again goodbye to the north, and the Assyrian army comes and wipes them out. And in the south, we bunker up and we stand fast, and we're centered once again. Next slide. Have you caught the pattern yet? What do you think is going to happen? They resist the Assyrian invasion, and the people bunker down, and they last a little while longer. 722 B.C. is when the north was destroyed. 701 B.C. is when the south resisted the Assyrians. But by 586, the kings of Judah are wicked once again. And Jeremiah, the prophet, 
pleads with them, gives them the word of the Lord, repent, 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 but they don't fear the Lord, they fear man. They want to live by the sword, they want to live by money, they want to get their own wealth, all of these sorts of things. And so Nebuchadnezzar, just like the Assyrian army did to the south, comes and he attacks Jerusalem, and the first time he attacks Jerusalem, he takes one wave of exiles back to town, and then the second time he attacks Jerusalem, a king named Zedekiah is on the throne, and the whole city is destroyed. Everything is gone. The temple itself is cast down stone by stone. The bronze altars are taken away. The sea of crystal, the sea that you washed, the basin of water is taken away. All the pillars of the temple taken down. Everything is gone. And so the people who got to witness the northern kingdom receive their due reward for their injustices. Instead of learning from them, they did the exact same thing, and even worse, or as Jeremiah puts it, let me find this quickly. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, have you seen the faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. And I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me. But she did not, and her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of her adultery. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear, and she also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. And in spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. And the, the people's, their worship was, was not only not centered around the Lord, their hearts were centered around the Lord. Their hearts were scattered all around, and they were just like their older sister Israel. And the Judeans were taken over by the Babylonians. They were exiled, and the king, Zedekiah, because he didn't listen to the words of Jeremiah, which would have spared his life, tried to run away like a coward. And he was caught by the Babylonian armies. And he was taken to uh, a city where Nebuchadnezzar was, and they, uh, they bound him up. They took ropes, and they tied him up, and they bound him. They leveled his head, so he had to look straight forward. And they slaughtered all of his sons right in front of his eyes. And then they took probably a hot coal or maybe a torch, and they burned his eyes out right afterwards. So that was the last thing that he ever saw was the destruction of Jerusalem, the slaughter of his sons, forever seared into his imagination. And they thought that Jerusalem couldn't fall. <laughs> they thought that the king would be established on the throne forever. And so there you have it. That explains the book of Lamentations okay, I think. All who pass your way clap their hands at you. They scoff and they shake their heads at daughter Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies, look, all of them, over and over, they come. They open their mouths wide against you. 
They scoff and they gnash their teeth and they say, we've swallowed her up. This is the day we've waited for and we have lived to see it. And what hope is there in the midst of this darkness? So why tell the story today? Why, why tell the whole thing, witness the people's unfaithfulness, the people's brief periods of faithfulness, witness their downfall and their destruction? What good does it do to us to have this story told? Why is this what we call scripture? Why is this what we call holy word of God? Now, we can pay attention to what the people of Israel were like, and try either to be or to not be like them. So take David, for example. Do we be like David? Do we read the scriptures because we want to be like King David? Kind of, maybe, sometimes. Do we read the scriptures because we want to be like Hezekiah? Well, Hezekiah was pretty good. Remember, he, he centered around Jerusalem, but I didn't tell you the latter half of Hezekiah's life, which was quite a bit worse. Do we want to be like the prophets? Well, the prophets are really great, but they all get murdered and slaughtered too. <laughs> Why? Are these people we're supposed to emulate. Are we supposed to be like them? Are we supposed to learn from their mistakes? Well, yes and yes and yes across the board, but I don't think that's the big question we need to ask ourselves today. Why do we need to read this story today? Why is it important for us to hear this story from the Ten Commandments to Advent? Maybe instead of paying attention to the people, we can pay attention to what God was doing all along. What was God working at? What was God doing over and over and over again? I think we could point to a lot of things, but what are your thoughts? What was God doing? You can look back over your notes. You can start brainstorming. Maybe you'll come to the same conclusion that I did this week. But here's what I want to say that God was doing. And God didn't start this in, in Sinai with the Ten Commandments either. He was doing this long before. But here's, here's our word for the day. Home, 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 home. God was desperately trying to make his home and to make a home with and among and for the people so that they could come together and they could be gathered around as a family so that their, their, the parents would be together and the children would be together and eventually all of the nations would be together gathered around the Lord himself with the people at peace, feasting together. God intended from the beginning to dwell with us. And God over and over and over tried, and we over and over and over rejected him and turned away and loved the things of the world more. We loved the darkness. We see it in Sinai. God's very spirit in literal flesh. The tabernacle is made of animal skin. God dwelt in animal flesh, in flesh on earth, in Sinai. But we can go all the way back to creation. In Genesis 2, the creation story, God creates everything good and he gives his power to everything to reproduce and to be life and to create families. And then God walks right in the very midst of it and says, look it, we're all together in this. We're walking together in the garden, producing fruit and righteousness and there's living water that's flowing and providing life eternal together. And we see it in Jerusalem when God, by his spirit, and by his temple establishes himself in a king and says, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to be here forever. And we, do we see it in the exile? Or is it gone in the exile? 
Maybe our last scripture for the day. The book of Ezekiel tells us one phenomenal story. Really many, but one in particular for us. The whole first chapter, maybe you've read it, Ezekiel sees this really wild vision. There's fire and the heavens are open and he sees four creatures in the fire, each with four faces and four wings and there's a wheel next to them. And they're zipping around like lightning across the earth. And then he sees this platform on top of the creature's wings that are supporting it. And then there's a throne. And then there's the the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord on top of the throne. And he's blown back by the majesty of what he sees that's like four steps removed from the actual Lord. And he says in verse 1 that this is his call to a prophet. And in verse 10, he sees this, or sorry, chapter 10, he sees the same thing. And he sees this crazy image of these angelic creatures with wings supporting a throne. What does that sound like? Any guesses? The Ark of the Covenant, yeah? With a throne on top of it and the Lord resting on his throne. Lift up out of the temple. And this is, again, this is after the exile. And move east. And which direction is east? And what country is to the east? Babylon. And God, comfortable, at home, he'd already done the work, he'd already built a place for the people multiple times. God lifts himself out of his comfort, out of his home, and exiles himself with the people to go with them. Why? Because God is never stopping to build a home for those who are lost in darkness, to build a home to be with those who are trapped in chaos, to create a home where he is with his bride, with his children, who he raised, who he taught how to walk, who he brought up to his cheek, as Hosea puts it. And the glory of the Lord, his very spirit, moves out. And this is a peculiar thing, that God from creation to Sinai, to Jerusalem, even to Babylon in darkness, has all along been making his home among us. And so we who wait in darkness await a coming light. And if the pattern is anything that can be uh, trusted upon, if God is going to be the same today as he was in the past, We can believe God is going to come and hear our cries and make his dwelling among us, and we will be at home once again. So what is Advent about? Proposition in closing. Advent is about leaving your home to be like God, to be with the lost. Our home, the homes that we have individually, this building that we are now building up together is not for us. It is for us, but it's for the lost. It's for those who are in darkness because our desire is to be like God. Our food that we make uh, on Wednesday for our harvest festival, even our cookies out here, or all of the other feasts that we, that we, uh, that we share together is for the lost, is for those who have no home, is for those who have been forgotten and left in exile. This Thanksgiving season is opportunity for us, as Stephen talked about in the Ten Commandments, for generosity, for giving as is our contentment, as he just talked about last week, not so that we can just lounge back in the comfort of our own temples, 
right? But so that we can be content and secure to lift up out and to go into exile with those who've been exiled, who've been forgotten, who are being mocked, who are being scoffed at. Our world left attended by only our sinful hands and our sinful ways will turn into a minefield of thorns, of fruitless vines and ammunition. And that is no place to call home. But we believe that God is coming and that God has come and made his dwelling place among us. God is over and over speaking his words of life to us through creation, through the law, through the prophets, and eventually through the one who we anticipate in Advent. And he's building his home with us here, giving us a place with him that is ripe for the living. So, remember your own exile. It's the time of year we do that. We remember that we are waiting, that we still await a home in heaven. And it's the time of year that we ignore the ever-present desire to be like everyone around us and instead give our full attention to being like God who is with us. This means we remember those who are still in exile, lost in the chaos and the nothing. This means we disregard our own comfort for the sake of seeking the lost. This means maybe that we give up even our own home in order to make home with the stranger, with the sinner, with the poor and the sick and the needy. This means that when you see the one at work, Maybe the one at school, maybe the one on the street who is alone, who is passed by by people who scoff and mock him or her, the one to whom people shake their heads and say, is this the person that was called the perfection of beauty, is the joy of the whole earth? Know that this is the one who's not forgotten, but who God has remembered, whom God does not mock, whom God has called beautiful and perfect, the apple of his eye, the joy of his heart, and to the one whose eye fails from weeping who is torment within them. Advent is a time to know that God shares in their weeping and by sharing in it, works all that he can to alleviate it. So again, this Advent, as we remember the story, what God has done for his people over and over and over again, through exile after exile after exile, be like God who seeks the lost. Don't ignore. Seek. Don't abandon but find, and in this world of darkness, in this time of thanksgiving and anticipation, share your home. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Jesus Christ, you have come, God incarnate, in flesh to be with us and to build a home for us. You've called us your brothers and your sisters, your mother, your sister, your brothers, and we give you thanks for it. Would we do the same for those around us, and would we seek out the lost and join them in their exile, and especially in this time of Christmas, in this time of Advent. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.